I have absolutely found that the more buyers treat buying a business like they're actually selling the seller, the easier the process is. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts, Justin and Ace. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, episode number four. I'm your host, Justin Cook, and I'm here with Ace Chapman. And today we are talking about understanding buyer and seller agreements. First off, buddy, I just wanted to say congrats on the launch. Really happy to have this podcast out and published, and we really hope you're appreciating the episodes. Yeah, it's so exciting to have a podcast after being interviewed and being on podcast for a while. It's, I'm excited to be able to dig a little bit deeper into this thing we call Web Equity. Yeah, actually, you were one of the guests on podcasts like all the time. Your name was popping up all the time as a guest on this show, guest on that show. I was like, why does this guy not have a podcast? It's like, dude, we got to do something about that. All right, man, let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be getting into. First, I'll just mention, you know, this is our legal disclaimer. We are not lawyers. We're not contract experts. We didn't go to school and study all the intricacies of contracts. So if you're looking for that, we're not your guys. But we do deal with contracts and agreements on a regular basis and have some tips on deals with buyers and sellers that I think will be helpful. This is something you're looking to get into. Yeah, one of the things about this space that some people love and some people don't is that it is a little bit of the Wild West. And so every once in a while we get into a deal where attorneys are involved. And I always recommend that a person goes and gets an attorney and, and all of that. But when it comes to doing these deals, a lot of times they're just too small to pay for the cost of an attorney. So knowing some of the basics about what you need to think about when you're putting together these agreements, which a lot of times you may be putting together on your own, it can help out a lot. Yeah, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk you through everything from negotiating the price to understanding all the parties and the different agents that might be involved. We're going to talk due diligence. We're going to talk terms and even some post-deal considerations that you know both a buyer and a seller need to be aware of and you know make sure they have an agreement on you know heading into finishing the deal. Ultimately, the purpose of an agreement is so that you can have some clarity. There are going to be some points or objectives that both the buyer and the seller want to achieve. And if you can come to some agreement on those terms, on those objectives, and get it clear and in writing, I think you're going to be heading into a much smoother deal and a win-win for both parties. All right, man, before we get into the show, let's do some listener shouts. First up, I got a question from Lewis. He says, I'm a newbie norms. I'm brand new. I'm looking to get started with a smaller investment, less than $10,000. I'd like the site to be earning around $500 a month. Can I get some help? What kind of site should I be looking for? Ace, what you got, buddy? Well, one of the things that is tough on these smaller sites is that a lot of what you have to do is research on your own. You know, it's, it's going to be tough to get a buyer representation or somebody who's going to walk you through the deal on a deal that's small. The good news is there are a lot of resources out there that can help you. One of them is and the other is just a lot of the blogs and information that's out there in, in this podcast to look for pointers on how to protect yourself. 
at the end of the day, the smaller deals is where a lot of the risk is. It tends to attract the scammers and folks that are looking to trip people into buying a site from them. So you have to be careful. I think it's a big mistake to get into uh, buying a small deal and just thinking, oh, it looks like this is good. I'm going to throw my money at it and see what happens. A lot of times if you're just going to see what happens, bad things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before the show and how much more likely there are to be scams or problems with sites that are under $10,000. So actually, I think you have to be a bit more careful with the smaller sites. And the bigger problem here is that there's just not enough money in the deal for you to get a whole bunch of representation. I mean, Ace, whatever piece you're getting out of it, let's say 10% or whatever, I mean, that's a thousand bucks on a $10,000 deal. You're probably not going to put a hundred hours <laughs> of work into helping on this thousand dollar deal for you, right? Like it just doesn't make sense financially. You're not going to do it. So, you know, a lot of brokers run into that problem is that you're not going to get a ton of help and support for the smaller deals. And so you're going to have to do some of that on your own. And it does make sense. Once you get into 50, 80, $100,000 deals, you're going to get a bit more support and help from brokers because it's financially viable for them to do so. Does that make sense? Yeah, that helps out a lot. And the other thing, it's just a lot less risky. So first of all, with the $10,000 deal, it's going to take just as much work to do the due diligence. And second of all, if you can get a slightly larger deal, there just are a lot less scams the higher up you go. So that's something to keep in mind as well. In terms of what type of site you should be looking for, Lewis, a lot of that's going to depend on kind of what your skill sets and your interests are. So if you're just, you know, the kind of guy that just loves like physical products, you love selling things you can absolutely touch and feel, maybe a dropshipping site would be great for you. I mean, it's harder to find that, you know, $8,000 dropshipping site, but they are out there. Just know that there's gonna be a heck of a lot more work for the, you know, $400 a month you're gonna be getting out of it. You know, you're gonna be working through learning it. You're not gonna make much money. You're not gonna get a great return on your time for that. A better return on your time and a more passive site would be an AdSense site or an Amazon affiliate site. You're much more likely to get a site that you don't have to do too much to. Maybe you have to add some content here and there, but you're going to find a lot more sites in that price range that are either AdSense or Amazon affiliate sites. If you're listening to the show right now and you do like the Web Equity Show, make sure to check us out and review us on iTunes. Your review will go a long way to helping make sure we get the word out and we get you know everyone out there knowing that we've got this new podcast going on. If you do have a question, either Ace or I, you can leave a question on the site, webequityshow.com. You can use SpeakPipe to record a quick audio note and we'll be able to put you on the show and get back to you. All right, man, let's get into the episode. Coming to an agreement to purchase a business requires clarity and understanding between both the buyer and the seller. Sometimes this can run much deeper than just the sales price of the business, and today we want to talk about understanding buyer and seller agreements and what they mean in terms of clarity, getting the deal done, and the post-sale support. Yeah, Justin, you know, I think everybody focuses a ton on the price. You know, first thing we're looking at is the price. What's the return going to be? But an agreement and when it comes to buying a business goes a lot deeper than just agreeing upon the price. I mean, for instance, the previous seller has their own set of agreements with employees, affiliate networks, other contractors, and you may be inheriting some of those things. So we're going to get into some of those other peripheral agreements as well. Yeah, I think price is important, right? It's definitely something that's important. It's probably the first, one of the first things you're looking at. But I think a savvy buyer understands that you can get deals done. Like there has to be win-win on both sides. And so a lot of times the agreement involves negotiations on things that aren't price, 
right? And so things that have value but aren't necessarily directly tied to the sale price. And, you know, things that, that buyers and sellers value. And sometimes deals get done, you know, on an earnout where, you know, the sales price is more than the listed price, right? Because the seller wants the yeah. long-term upside. Sometimes it's all about non-competes, right? It's a really big issue with the non-compete. And so, you know, the buyer's pushing for that. The seller's trying to avoid it and is willing to yeah. take less money so that they can continue to compete. So there are a lot of you know, side things that, that aren't necessarily tied to price that come into the yeah, deal. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously being able to have a list of these kinds of questions, like, you know, what kind of training is going to be provided or what is the non-compete agreement? You're making an agreement that's not just about the close. And it's easy as a business buyer to focus on getting to the close of the deal and owning the business. But the truth is the agreement is going to guide your ownership of that business. So beyond the close, what is the deal going to look like on an ongoing basis? But let's start with the very basics. I mean, at the end of the day, we got to come to agreement on the price before we even dig into some of these other things. And, you know, I think a lot of people, especially in the environment that we're in right now, just come in with an understanding that the sales price is the sales price. And in some cases, there's just a tremendous amount of demand and you have no choice but to pay that price. But sometimes there are these other things that we're going to talk about, you know, like you mentioned the compete or non-compete that the person's willing to sign. There may be other things that seller is really interested in beyond a cash payment, like, you know, how are you going to pay all of the money at closing? Do you need to pay some of it out as an earnout? Those kind of things can impact the price of the business. And so I always tell people, you want to look at the deal holistically. So it may be that you're able to compete with this other person that is willing to pay the full ask and compete with them by coming up with some creative aspects in the deal. I like how Justin Gilchrist talks about, you know, I don't care necessarily on getting even the best multiple. Like that's not the most important to me. And I'm willing to pay a higher multiple for certain terms in the deal that makes sense, right? So if I can get my mm -hmm. non-compete, if I can get less cash up front, if I can tie it to success of the site over time, right? Like I'm fine, you know, paying more over time or paying a higher multiple and price is less important to me than some of these other things. And I think that's the case for some other, especially savvy buyers, people that are in the industry. I think it's the newer people that are like, look, you know, I want to get it for cheaper, right? Like if I pay less, that's a win for me. And I think, you know, even as brokers, we fall into that trap sometimes. We think, oh, okay, well, if they're you know, paying less, they're getting a lower multiple, they're potentially getting a higher return. But, you know, those may not be the only critical things in the deal. Um, now, look, I, you know, I don't want, you know, crazy lowball offers. People, hey, I'll give you a 30% of ass. That's, <laughs> that's just not likely to fly, right? But, but it depends on the deal. And, you know, you were mentioning, like, you know, how many people are interested in this particular deal is going to determine the price. Well, you know, we have sites that if a site's brand new and we've got eight people interested in buying a site, well, you know, you're going to be in a tough spot when it comes to negotiating on price, right? But a deal that's yeah. been sitting around for two or three months and there's, you know, a nibble here and nibble there, but not a ton of interest, you might have more leverage, more opportunity to negotiate. Yeah, I think in a lot of those cases, 
when it comes down to demand and why it's important to talk to your broker or talk to the seller and understand kind of what's going on with that deal, it can just be confusing. So if you've got a seller's attention, you have the opportunity to come up with that kind of creative offer, show them why the price is this amount and the other terms that you may be more lenient on when it comes to that deal. But if a seller is making a decision between eight different offers, there isn't a way for them to deal with complexity with all eight of those people. So it just because of the way the brain works, they're going to go with the simple decision. This guy's paying me the most money. Uh, we'll figure out the other terms. Let's get the deal done. Oh, that's totally true. You know, I, I didn't even think about that, but that's true. Like, even if you may be offering a better deal, but it's more complex or it has more requirements or earnouts or, you know, seller finance or something like that. Even if it's for more money, you know, 105%, 110% of ask, they may not do it just because they want the simplicity and it gets confusing mm -hmm. when you're dealing with, you know, multiple potential buyers. That makes sense. Ace, tell me under what circumstances do you look for sites that are, have been around for two months, three months, six months? Is it for sites that might be in terms of price, like a reach for you or your customer? Like you're not sure you want to spend that much, but it's been there three or four months. You're willing to see if you can come in and get a deal. I know other times you look at deals right away as soon as they hit the market, yeah. you're looking at them. But sometimes you wait. Like what's the determining factor there for you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. I think the real opportunities are at both extremes. You know, there's amazing opportunities if you jump on them immediately. I think we were just talking about a deal that I just bought from my personal portfolio. And, you know, sometimes it comes out. It's like, okay, that's a great opportunity. You see it, you know it. You're looking at enough deals that you know when you see it. And so those opportunities are there. And the other really great opportunities are at the other end of the spectrum. It's the one that's been sitting there for three or four months. They've, you've got to think about it from the seller's perspective. They've talked to a bunch of potential buyers. They've probably gone through some negotiations. Some deals have fallen through. They're kind of exhausted with the process and just ready to get something done. And that's another really great time to jump into those deals. It's a little bit different in this space than offline, where that period may be more like, nine months or you know past the six month period for sure whereas there's a little more deal fatigue from sellers pretty quickly in this space just because of dynamics and the number of people you're talking to and all that good stuff so yeah i like those two extremes dude so funny you mentioned that deal you just picked up i actually said you snaked that deal for me man i don't know <laughs> i don't know what's going on. so like there's a site that we had this it was from a previous buyer so we listed it like years ago the guy bought it sold it again it went up like 50 60 percent but just a nice steady earner not huge or anything but like a good earner and i woke up in the morning i was like you know i think that might be a good one for our investor come to find out ace snatched it up man while i was sleeping <laughs> that's just what i get for being in asia i guess right <laughs> exactly exactly i was up during the right hours and got it <laughs> good on you man i'll get you on the next one <laughs> all right man so that's we said quite a bit about price let's move on to parties and the people involved in deals. And I think as a buyer or a seller, you need to make sure you're aware and comfortable with all of the players, right? And so, you know, the first one to look at is the seller from the buyer's perspective. Like, who is this seller? Like, is the person I'm speaking to the sole decision maker? Do they have a partner, right? Do they have multiple partners? Are they authorized to speak for all of the partners or parties involved on the sell side? The worst thing you can do is, you know, you're trying to get a deal done and you're negotiating with one party and you find out that 
you know, the guy and his wife on the site. So Nines just talked to his wife. And this is just like general sales stuff. But like, you know, it's the same thing with partners or, you know, what if one person is looking to sell and the other one isn't? And now you're putting yourself in a really awkward position. Absolutely. I think it'd be good to chat a little bit about what you guys do to verify that the person you're talking to is the person that can make the decisions to sell the site. Yeah. So, you know, I think verifying the seller is really important to us. And beyond just like that, they only own it. That's important too, but that the seller's a real person, right? I mean, mm. all of our deals are done online over the internet and, you know, who knows who is who, right? So we look at things, silly things like, do they have a Facebook page and do they have, you know, friends? Like, did they go to their friend's barbecue last weekend and are people responding to their Facebook photos? Like, is it a real yeah. person, right? <laughs> we look at, in cases where they don't have much social media presence, we require an identification. And then we look to make sure that they actually own the site, that they have access to the domain, that the hosting account is in their name, all these types of things to make sure that it's actually theirs. You know, I think that helps, you know, we know for sure that the person selling the site is the person that owns it and is the decision maker. And that's something we ask as well, because, you know, like what if there is a partner or something and, and, you know, we're just not clear about how that happens. And now we, you know, the buyer gets into a funky situation where they're negotiating with half of the parties involved. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, some people even use that as a negotiation tactic like the, well, I got to talk to my wife and that kind of thing. But being able to ask up front, who else is involved? Who else is going to be involved in this decision that you're going to have to make at some point when we receive an offer? That just makes it a lot easier to get things to the closing table. Does this strike you as funny that we're talking about sales tactics and techniques on the buy side? That seems funny, doesn't it? It is. It is. But I have absolutely found that the more buyers treat buying a business like they're actually selling the seller, the easier the process is. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. It just struck me as funny. But it's totally true, right? <laughs> I mean, you're you're trying to get over, you know, objections and in the negotiation you're making sure you're talking to the decision maker. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Regarding other parties or people involved, depending on the size of the business, you know, you start getting into six, mid six and seven figure businesses, you know, a lot of times there are employees that are running, you know, the majority or doing the majority of the work of that business. Are those employees transferring with the business, right? Do they have contractors that are doing regular work? Are they coming along with the business too? Are they aware that the business is being sold? Are they okay with going along? Or are they going to start looking for jobs as soon as the business is sold? I mean, these are some concerns you might have as a buyer. Like what expectations, you know, are in the employee's minds? Were they at any point told they have equity, that they have some kind of profit share? Like, are they expecting some kind of earn out or something when the business sales and leaving you on the hook for it, you know, and how, how is it handled? Like, how are the employees told at what point are you brought in as the buyer introduced and kind of like, you know, put into the mix and how is that explained? So there's a lot of clarity that comes with employees and contractors that needs to, I think, carefully be dealt with. Yeah. I've dealt with those kind of things in the past where there were these kind of side agreements and that kind of thing. And unfortunately some sellers Forget, you know, it's, we, we talk about sellers hiding things, but sometimes they really make a promise and they forget and then you buy the business and the contractor employee comes to you saying, hey, I was supposed to have this. And you go to the seller and like, oh, yeah, I did say that. <laughs> so It's yeah. a weird and interesting scenario because like with a, a stock sale or whatever, like you as a buyer, you are 
liable for liabilities in the previous corporation. Mm -hmm. You've bought the corporation. In an asset sale, you're not. But that doesn't fly too well when you're talking about key employees in the organization, right? You're like, well, legally, I'm not required to. Well, but they run your business. They are your business. So yeah, you need them. The other thing you have to consider in terms of parties involved are the third parties involved. And this can be minimal. It can be one or two other people or parties. And it can be heavy just depending on the deal. And this can include things like accountants, uh, attorneys. If it's a lead generation site, the company or companies that are buying the leads, affiliates, right? Some of the affiliate programs, the ad agencies, third-party due diligence companies, and the customers. Going back to lead buyers real quick, we've had some situations where it's weird because you know the website is selling to just one customer, right? And so you have to worry as a buyer, like, is that customer, you know, the seller's sister? Right. Are they somehow related or in cahoots? Right. And so making sure that you're aware of that person, that you're putting contact with that person and that you can verify them doing your due diligence is really important. I think, you know, the last one I mentioned to customers, I think that's really important, especially if the business is heavily relationship based. How will that relationship change with you as a buyer stepping in and taking over? And how can you and the seller come to an agreement on smoothing that transition and smoothing you into the job. Yeah. The more you can plan that up front, the easier it is. The biggest mistake people make is waiting to the back end to figure out all that stuff. And that's when it can become a nightmare and surprises start to pop up. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about once you get to the point, you get the agreement and you're ready to close the deal. Some people will use escrow. And, you know, just a simple explanation, escrow allows you to send your money in. They hold the money. You can transfer the website over to your servers, transfer the domain into your account. And once you've got everything ready to go and you've gone through the site, looks like money's coming in, you can release funds to the seller. The thing that I'm a big fan of is whether or not you're using escrow, having somebody in between you and the seller. I did a deal early on figuring this stuff out, bought a site, us worked it out with the seller to send them half the money. And then once we got everything transferred, we're going to send the other half, which was, you know, better than nothing on my part. But the guy was such a nice guy. I really liked him. I was also young and naive. He came back to me and said, well, you know, I got something going on with the domain. There's an issue on my side, but I really need that money. Do you mind? You've got everything. You're already earning the cash from the site. Do you mind just sending me the rest of that? And then, you know, we'll get this domain thing worked out. And me being young, sweet, naive, ace. (laughs) agreed to that Uh, two months go by three months go by I'm emailing the guy he's fallen off the face of the earth and in the back of my head I'm thinking well I'm making money from the site you know eventually I'll get this domain six months later the domain is now pointed to a new server with the same version of the site and he is now making the money so it was a Glad of a small deal, and I'm glad one of my early experiences that you know I was able to learn from. It was a small deal, so luckily it wasn't that much money. If it was a lot of money, that'd be way more concerning. But also the fact that six months had gone by, and generally, 
You know, you've done some work at that point. You put in the hours, yeah. the elbow grease, and to have that happen, man. Oh, I was, as soon as you started, I was like, "What's where's he going with this?" And I was like, "Oh, oops, <laughs> yep, that's what's going on." And that's what happens without any third party in place, right? I mean, you have to figure out how you're going to do it. So you can break it up into goalposts, like. I'll give you 25% and then you do this. I'll give you another 25% and then you do this. But like the lack of trust and the kind of confusion that's going on there makes that difficult. So, you know, if you can have agreements in place and there's a third party, which is what escrow is, third party acts and will hold the money until those agreements are met. And then, you know, escrow basically ensures that nobody ends up with both the domain and the money, right? So always, every single time, it will never happen that someone gets both the money and the domain. So there's a level of protection there. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, that's the pro to going out and using escrow. The, you know, con or downside is there can be fees associated if you go with a service like escrow.com. And sometimes it can, for a smaller deal, just complicate the deal. It's a very simple blog and it's a simple process. Sometimes it can add some steps that aren't necessary. And I know you guys Justin will act as the kind of escrow agent in between the buyer and seller so that they don't have to pay those fees and deal with some of those uh, complications. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure at what deal I wouldn't use escrow. I think never reaching out to a brand new seller, me as a buyer, reaching out to a brand new seller who I don't know is saying, hey, just send me the money or send me 50% up front. I don't think I'd ever do that if they don't have some kind of reputation online where like it would be problematic for them to screw me. I don't think I would ever do that, even for small deals, maybe, you know, a couple thousand dollars or something. But like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that would be very difficult one, a pill for me to swallow. Yeah. 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 We act as escrow for our buyers and sellers. So we, based on the terms of the agreement, will hold the money and pay out the money based on that agreement being met. And again, we make sure that no one ends up with both the money and the domain, I think that's important. But you know, we only work for ourselves. There are other escrow companies out there, one of them being escrow.com, and there's a few others. Ace, you know some of the other companies out there? Escrow.com. No, I've, I've only used uh, escrow. You know, they do their job, had good experiences with them, but I haven't gone out and tried anybody else. I'm amazed that there aren't any, or at least I haven't come across any of the other ones. But yeah, I'll have to poke around and see if there's some worth checking out. There are a couple others that I've come across that we've never used them. So I got a pitch right now, man. I got a little pitch, if you can give me a little leeway. I want someone to create an escrow company specifically for buying and selling online businesses. Like, I want that. I wish someone would do that, create that. Some attorney, some finance guy would create that because, you know, one of the problems with some of the other escrow companies out there is they don't specifically focus on buying and selling online businesses. They do it for cars and trucks and property and, you know, crates and that kind of thing. They do it for all different kinds of things. And so websites and businesses are just one of the things they do it for. And so they don't really know our industry. And so if someone created that, I think that would be awesome. We can't, right? Because we're too involved in the industry. I don't mm-hmm. think you can either because you're a player yeah. in the industry. But I want someone to. I've been chirping about this to some attorneys and other people. I'm hoping someone bites on this, man. Yeah, I agree. I mean, well, first of all, this is definitely a pitch-friendly zone. So <laughs> I, I welcome the pitches. But I cannot believe. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of transactions that are going through the space. It's a huge opportunity for somebody to take advantage of. And right now it's working, but a lot of the brokers are doing what you guys are doing and acting as the escrow 
and fortunately, we do have some people that are doing that with some good reputations. But that long term, I think, isn't the right solution. So that, that would be a good I agree. It's awkward because we're players in the deal, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we do have buyers and sellers interests to some degree, but like we have competing interests at times, too. And so it is kind of an awkward situation. I think it's the better situation than the current alternatives, although I wish someone would start a company that provides the best situation. I think that'll come yeah. as our industry matures. And literally, I mean, I've been in transactions that are million dollar transactions and my client is saying, are we really going to let the broker hold his escrow? <laughs> that is out, that's kind of outrageous. So yeah, I think it'll happen eventually. And hopefully somebody listening to this podcast will take that as a challenge and go create that business. Absolutely. All right, man, let's move to the next point, which we're talking due diligence and closing the deal. When it comes to due diligence, when it comes to closing, you need to set expectations for the due diligence period and the closing period. So how long does the buyer have to make a decision? And again, that can be a negotiation point, right? So how long do they have to do their due diligence? What's required before you even go into due diligence? Is it a refundable deposit? Is it a non-refundable deposit? At what point are they tied to it or they have to walk away? At what point can other people go back to making offers? All these things need to be figured out. Now, on the sell side, obviously, you'd like to make it a reasonable amount of time for the buyer to make a decision. On the buy side, you'd like a bit more time, but that's going to be a negotiation point, and it needs to be laid out up front. One of the ways deals can get lost and deals can go to crap are when that's not decided, and so the buyer just wants to take their sweet time. They're taking two weeks. They're taking four weeks. They're taking eight weeks. So I was like, look, you know, I know we didn't have agreement on this, but this is getting kind of ridiculous. Let's, you know, let's get this deal done or not. And the seller's still trying to lock them up and not let them shop to other buyers. Yeah, it could be frustrating. I think even from the buyer's perspective, I think when you've got somebody that doesn't know what they're looking at, they really are just trying to get comfortable with the deal. But I encourage buyers, look at this from the seller's perspective. Yeah, I think buyers, and one of the ways they can help with this is to give the seller an idea what to expect in terms of what they need to provide and do that early, right? So let them know, here's what I need and understand what you need for due diligence. Yes, you may have to go back and ask for additional information or access, but try to get as much of that up front so the seller knows what to expect and has the proper time to get you everything you need as a buyer to make a buying decision. And for sellers, you know, they need to be prepared. They need to have their finances in a row. They need to have, make sure that all of their tracking, all their expenses are accounted for and you know, try to make the due diligence process easy. They want to close quicker. So the best way to do that is to have everything ready and available and to quickly respond to buyer requests and get them all the information they need. The quicker they can do that, the better chance they have it at closing the deal on time or even early. I think it's a good idea to be conservative with your due diligence period. So, you know, try to, as a buyer, try to get that extended. And then for sellers, right, they're going to want a shorter period generally, but it's okay. Like try to be a little conservative, try to overestimate. And then as a buyer, do your due diligence as quickly and as upfront as you can, both because it's, I think, the respectful thing to do and not just waste the seller's time, but also because if you can make a decision quick and early and you want to bounce out of the deal and look elsewhere, you don't want to spend weeks and weeks, you know, mulling over this deal. If you can find out quickly mm. that it's not for you, then get out. Yeah, I think a lot of times buyers don't realize that this is opportunity cost. You know, your time and focus is valuable. 
So you're not just wasting the seller's time when you take a long time. You're wasting your own. So the more organized you can come in, get in, get either in the deal and close it or out of the deal and on to the next one, the better off you are. Yeah, that's why, you know, if people are being particularly picky, right, which I think in some instances is going to be picky about certain things, obviously. But if you're being particularly picky for like, let's say a low five figure deal, and you do that with five, six, eight deals over the course of three months, four months, six months, you're getting to the point where like, even if you get this amazing unicorn of a deal you're looking for, like what kind of return are you going to need to make up for all the hours you put in trying to find it, right? <laughs> so yeah, that opportunity cost definitely comes into play. At the same time, you don't want to just be like, yes, I'll buy it. Yes, I'll buy that one. Sounds great too. <laughs> so you know, there is some kind of balance there I think that you need to consider. Absolutely. So when it comes to the actual terms of the deal, every once in a while, you know, we, we close a deal, we've done some deals like that have the terms in addition to the price. Um, it, these could be things like an earnout. So in addition to paying some amount of money at close, you've got a monthly payment that may be a percentage of revenue and that kind of thing. It could be a straight finance deal where you're making monthly payments on an ongoing basis that may be a specific fixed amount. Regardless of kind of what those terms are, it's a really important thing to talk about the specifics of, of those terms. So it goes beyond just here's the amount that I want to pay in a earnout or finance and that kind of thing. You got to get into this is what the percentage is. This is how we're going to calculate that percentage. This is the date of each month that payment is going to be made. And the more specific you can work those things out and dig into, okay, this is what to expect and have clarity on both sides of the table, the better. The other thing that can be tough is making sure that you're both on the same page because what means, you know, you may have defined profits as, you know, this is the amount after these expenses. Somebody else may define profit as this is the amount after the product is paid for. So you have like a gross profit and you have net profit. And so kind of spending some time and not trying to make it too elementary, but expressing your definition of some of these concepts that, you know, people just look may define differently can make the long term aspect of the deal and that relationship as positive as possible. Yeah, that can get a little weird, right, man? So like you're talking about profit. Do I get to count my weekend in Vegas as expenses? Right? Oh, yeah, I was networking, <laughs> I was meeting people, right? Like it gets a little awkward. And so if I want to count that as net profit, you know, there's gonna be some unhappy party on the other side. And I think, yeah, that can get a little sticky. And the other side of it, right, you can do it tied, you know, as a multiple of profit or like a percentage. Sorry, we're getting detailed now, but you can do yeah. an earnout <laughs> as a percentage of profit, but tied to revenue. And say, look, if you make this business less profitable, that's on you. But I'm taking, you know, let's say it's 50% profit margin. I'm going to take, you know, half of the profit. So I'm just going to say I'm tying it to 25% of revenue, right? So you could do something like that, but then you can have some frustrations from the new buyer who does have these added expenses. Maybe you, you know, mm -hmm. the seller accidentally left off, you know, some of the expenses that they had or there were some growth expenses that just need to be paid. And now the buyer isn't making anything and just paying out the seller. That can be frustrating too. But I think all these things need to be cleaned up. On smaller deals, it's normally just, you know, an agreement on, okay, here's what the payments are. But I think, you know, yeah. especially as you get to larger deals, 
there needs to be penalties for not paying on time. And then also, you know, ultimately, if those payments stop coming, what happens? There needs to be some clarity yeah. on that, right? So that's generally when you have attorneys involved in the contracts and writing them up. And I'd say those are important for larger deals, definitely mid to high six figure and in the seven figure range. Absolutely. Cool, man. So let's talk about another point we want to get into, which is training or ongoing support. And this is something that we've dealt with with you and some of your buyers, Ace, is that with a site or with a business that, you know, not as clear up front on what the work is. Like there may be some either technical work or there's like a process that isn't terribly clearly defined by the seller because they just have never done it or whatever. You know, you've done deals where I want to pay this much up front and, you know, this much after 30 days or 60 days or however long we think it's going to take for that to happen. And I think there needs to be real clarity on what's required from the seller, what the buyer is asking for in terms of how many calls are we going to do? Are we meeting in person? How long are we meeting in person? How much email support are you going to give and for what period of time? And all this needs to be done before the deal is even closed. Yeah, yeah. The more you can, and what I encourage buyers to do is just overestimate. You know, a lot of times buyers get into a situation, the reason they're not specific about it is they say, well, I have no idea what I'm going to want or what I'm going to need. It's like, think about the worst case scenario of, absolutely everything you would need from the seller and then add to it because the worst case is you know you do need that much help but maybe you don't and that seller feels like man i got out and didn't have to do all of that and so maybe a year down the line you need something from them they're like well you know they didn't even use all the support that we negotiated so i'm more than willing to help them out now that often happens ace where you know the seller's like you know okay yeah no i'm willing to do it and then the buyer gets in there requested a whole bunch of time and then at the end of 30 days you know so i was like oh that wasn't much at all you know they, they even check in hey is there anything else you needed are you sure you're good to go with this and i can tell you that on the sell side you know offering the training and making that either a contractual agreement or just you know agreement via email or whatever making sure that both parties agree to that is pretty easy that's an easy give for them because you know they're yeah. selling their business they're excited to be cashing out on this thing and they're already thinking about their trip to vegas or the you know, the inventory they're going to buy for their e-commerce business or whatever the hell they're going to do with the money, that's already spent, man, right? So they're like, look, yes, no, I'll, I'm happy to train. I can give you 30 days, whatever you need, whatever you need in 30 yeah. days. So, so I think it is important for the buyer to just kind of like really lay that out. I think it's also important, you know, for the buyer to build a good relationship with the seller, right? And, you know, but not be afraid to ask a silly or simple questions. I think you know, if there's something you don't understand or there's, you know, you're a new about it, you're brand new to this and you don't understand it, feel free to ask. But don't be a jerk about it either. Be cool with the seller because you may need to go back to them someday for something and you want to make sure that you end that, you know, well, don't burn any bridges. Also, I really recommend this. There's opportunities to do business again in the future. You know, that mm -hmm. seller sold a business that you like. They're probably going to do business again unless they're totally out and they're retiring or something, they're gonna be building another business. Is there a possibility for you guys to JV in the future? Can you work together? Can they stay on an advisor on the current business that you bought from them? There are lots of opportunities. So those are bridges you don't wanna burn. Yeah, I'm such a big fan of building relationships with these sellers. At the end of the day, they've made it past the entrepreneurial gauntlet in a lot of cases. Or, you know, I call it winning the entrepreneurial lottery, because no matter how smart you are, how good you are, you've got a 
vast number of these businesses that are going to fail and never make a single dime. So they've made it past that and actually built something of value and something that's more importantly profitable. So building a relationship with that person, you know, you never know what's going to come from it, but you know that, hey, this is somebody of quality. They built a business. It has value. There's something that you can learn from that person. In addition to obviously the fact that, you know, I've had plenty of deals where we may have something a year down the line where it does get hit with a Google update or whatever. And being having a great relationship with that seller allows you to go back and say, hey, what would you do in this scenario? How can we, do you mind coming in and doing some consulting? Will you work with? And in a lot of cases, we've built enough of a relationship that even when we offer to pay, they're like, no, I don't want any money. It's all good. Let's figure this out and get this thing back on track. And yeah. so that's been really valuable for us. Or that seller may be willing to, you know, you have a couple of questions for them about another business, you know, they answer them for you. They can come to you. It could be turned into a friendship. I mean, it could turn into a yeah. mastermind where you guys are working together and meeting every week or every month. And you guys start actually working together and talking about some of the other businesses that you guys are working on. So yeah, I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, clearly, yeah, you talked about passing the gauntlet, right? They got first the, past the initial phase of like most businesses don't make a profit at all. So they got past that. They're making money. But they're making money in a business that you're not buying. So you clearly have similar interests, right? The interests are similar. <laughs> so, so you've got that in common. I think there's plenty of opportunity to work together. Absolutely. Well, this has been an awesome episode. I think people are going to get some value out of this and kind of be able to step back, look at the different aspects of the deal and make it a little bit easier to get to closing. I think the biggest key that we mentioned several times is being specific about all these different aspects of the agreement and not just going along feeling like, okay, well, we know the price. We know when we're going to close. Let's just get the deal done. The more you can be specific up front, the easier it is to win long term. Yeah, I think clarity is the most important thing, Ace. And, you know, us over at Empire Flippers, we've gotten beaten up a little bit because sometimes we don't use contracts. And a lot of our deals are not contracts, especially in like the low five-figure, mid-five-figure range. Like, you know, but we do, with those no-contract deals, we do require some clarity from both the buyer and seller going into it. So that's still important. And uh, for, I think, the more complicated deals, whether it's based on structure or just a larger, like the higher sales price, you know, having an actual contract and potentially bringing in attorneys to make sure that both sides are protected and comfortable, I think makes sense too. Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 